Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 4 and 5. I led you through the wilderness 40 years. The clothes on your back did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. It continues, you had no bread to eat and no wine, and no other intoxicant to drink, that you might know that I am Adonai, your God. It echoes back earlier in Deuteronomy when it says, human does not live on bread alone. And I've always been fascinated by how often that's misused, because it's almost like a message from Hashem. Every single time someone says, you know, you, you know, Nadav, you should try the good whiskey, or you know, you should have that really good thing, because we're not meant to live on bread alone. When, of course, the original context in the Torah is the exact opposite. Bread itself is a luxury. You don't need to live on bread. You could live on the dew collecting on this odd plant that grows in the ancient Near East that we call manna. Right? You don't actually need bread. So we can live a simpler life, is what it's saying. Rashi really wants to push the miracle that we're talking about in these verses. So he says, you know what it means about the clothes lasted? The clothes on the kids, they grew. The clothes grew as the children grew before you. So you didn't even have to replace them, which itself I love, but seems like a lot of wish fulfillment for parents. And so Ibn Ezra decides, you know, that's really a little bit too fanciful. And Ibn Ezra, who likes to concentrate on language and often logic, says, I'd like to think of it more that God gave the people extra endurance. And your shoes wear out and your feet swell up when you run or move too fast. And so God gave the people endurance and he made them walk slowly. And when one is in an endurance contest, like we're all in, and when one is moving slowly, their shoes don't wear out. So the idea of the miracle of the clothes, I've been wanting to give this sermon because I don't know about you, but I think about it every time I put on my clothes these days. I find that I'm wearing just one or two or three sets of clothes because for Shabbos clothes over and over and over again. And I started to like my shoes so much and I've been wearing them into the garden and I've been wearing them into the mud and I wore them like a little bit in the snow and stuff. And I keep expecting them to wear out. So I ordered the exact same shoes because I said, I love these shoes and I know I'm gonna wear them out in the pandemic because I wear them all the time. And so I haven't had to wear them because my old shoes seem to be holding up just fine. And it's like, a, it's like this miracle straight out of the Torah that in this endurance race, when we slow down, do we really need all these new shoes? And is it something about the way we're walking in the world without God that is making us buy more and more clothes? How many do we really need? I had a friend who is a PhD from Cambridge in history and used to come over because we were both single and we both commiserate, hang out as doctoral students. And I'd always want to put on a movie or something. And he used to bristle. I couldn't put on anything that was all a period drama. And I used to say, well, you know, like, you won't let me watch any of this Pride and Prejudice, all this other stuff. You know, he, no. Why not? He couldn't stand to look at the clothes. He said, everything looks to me like it just came out of wardrobe. 
And you have to understand, as someone who's immersed in history, that's not the way people's clothes looked. They didn't look like they just came out of wardrobe. They had holes in them. They had, they had marks in them. They had patches on them. Oh my gosh, you know, like I once put on Last of the Mohicans. And he's like, you got to take it off because Michael Mann, who loves realism, dressed all the soldiers in brand new uniforms. People only had a few sets of clothes. And as I often say before Yisker, we remind ourselves that the whole process of ripping your clothes, you would then sew it up, two different kinds of sewing up, one for parents, one for other loved ones. You repaired those clothes. And so you walked around in garments that showed your heart. Our hearts aren't brand new. They, they're like the shoes that wear the miles, right? And we count our experiences by the patches on them. So I've been waiting to sort of think about and talk about this idea. And then I looked at what's happening within the pandemic, and you may have noticed it already. We've been walking more slowly. We've been channeling the gift of endurance. We've been facing each week the new challenges and change directions. But when I look in the mirror, I see the same clothes. And I'm amazed at how few clothes I really need, as entire closets are collecting dust. In August, the New York Times Magazine published an extensive and to me fascinating story on the, on the clothes industry. Even before the pandemic, the whole fashion industry had started to unravel. That's the title of it. What happens now that no one has a reason to dress up? Industry was already dangling by a thread before the pandemic. We already had Zach Posen going out of business, uh, Barney's, all the over the next few months, J. Crew bankrupt, Neiman Marcus bankrupt, Brooks Brothers bankrupt, JCPenney filed for bankruptcy. The Gap couldn't pay its rent on 2,785 North American stores. How did we get here? How is, in April, clothing sales fell 79%, the largest dive on record. How did we get here with the fashion industry? How did this combination of fashion shows, seasonal collections, wholesale accounts, and markups required to pay for all of this. How has it escalated and developed in the last few years? How is a global fashion system run? You probably already know the answers. It started in some ways with online purchasing and viewing of collections, how media went from you buy a monthly edition of Vogue, but it's round the clock viewing and purchasing and media, then the shows started to increase. Two collections by a designer became four mid-season collections. Those four often have spun into six. Now designers are releasing winter clothes. They're expected to do the shows in June. So before the summer has really started, they're doing the fall and winter fashion lines. Fashion media has exploded itself. Mark Jacobs said, it's a scam, fashion week. I love doing shows, but you get caught up in it and then you can't stop because if you stop, they're going to write about you stopping and you're going to look like a failure, and the stores will stop buying your stuff. And you don't really know why they're buying your stuff in the first place, but they're buying it. And then you're not relevant anymore if you're not doing a show. With department stores teetering on having no customers, the designers needing to sell quantities of clothing, the alliance was made that the industry would be designed now to drive customers into department stores to buy collections. But each department store had to be exclusive. So it wasn't that, I don't know, it was a Kmart that only had Jacqueline Smith. That's a long time ago. So now it's that you can buy Zach Posen anywhere, right? Mark Jacobs anywhere. But 
it has to be different if you go to Nordstrom's than if you go to Target and if you go to whatever these stores are that I don't go to. And so in order for them to be different, the designers have to design and produce and manufacture unique clothes for each of them. That may be why in the last decade, when you've gone in to look for a simple cashmere sweater on sale at Christmas or maybe Hanukkah, and instead they all seem to have zippers, giant animal faces, glitter shoulders, or maybe are partially distressed. And you found yourself annoyed you're not alone. That was so I could sell to Saks, Neiman, Barney's, Nordstrom's, Colette, and everybody could have their own special thing. I was basically making stuff I didn't like because I thought a buyer wanted it. I wasn't even thinking about a potential customer. And so then what happened? So you're, you're a designer. You have all these shows. You have to make all these clothes, you know, just a multitude of exponentially more clothes than you've ever made before. And then the department stores are suffering. They have no customers. No one wants to go to the mall anymore. And so they can only sell a small amount of clothes. So the deal they make with the designers is we don't pay you for the clothes we don't sell. We're only going to pay you for the clothes that we do. So we're actually producing millions of pieces of clothing that are unbought, that those who manufacture and sell and design are not being paid for. And in fact, in the, in the year before the pandemic, many of those contract deals were changing because of the industry teetering on the edge. So that what was happening is designers and manufacturing houses were actually having to pay a penalty for any piece that doesn't sell. So the designers were saying, according to the, the August article, the July article, about what was happening already before the pandemic in last spring and summer, is they were going out of business. They're making clothes that will never be worn, that largely end up in dumpsters, a few of which are shipped to Africa, mostly are used clothing, and we might think that that's a great gift, but it actually disrupts the industries there of people who are making locally clothes for people and those of that entire way of life and industry. And so the whole thing is ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous. And the effect on the environment is insane. Globally, consumers purchase 80 billion pieces of new clothing each year for all the polyesters and nylons, they're made from, they're basically fossil fuel based. They are toxic in their manufacturer and they're throwing out. Approximately 85% of the clothing Americans use, nearly 3.8 billion pounds annually, is sent to landfills as solid waste, amounting to nearly 80 pounds per American per person. 85% of fossil fuel based polyester and nylon clothing will end up in landfills where it will never decay or decompose. It takes 10,000 liters of water to produce one kilo of cotton, meaning it makes 2,700 liters of water to make one cotton t-shirt. Industry experts say that what we need to do is to care for our clothes. We need to make them last longer, even extending the life of our garments by an extra nine months of use, active use, wearing them would reduce the carbon, water, and waste footprint by around 20 to 30% each year. So that's my sermon. I've been waiting to give it for, for, for ever since I realized I was wearing the same three sets of clothes over and over. You know, one for my Zoom meetings at home, one for when I'm not on Zoom, and one for Shabbos and holidays. And I'm thinking to our ancestors, and I'm thinking back into the Torah, for God said, at least in Ebenezer's view, when you slow down, your clothes last. 
And when you look at them and say, you know, I can wear that because there may be a little bit of a stain on it. It may have be patched up. It may not look like people, will people notice that my shoes are not brand new, even though they're fine. And when I'm not running around to all the things I run around to, I'm not wearing out the soles of my shoes. And so they last longer. I think part of this pandemic has shown the weakness the gigantic polluting and wasteful industry of clothes. And I feel for all those people whose jobs are at risk in the clothes industry. But we could say that for every industry in the world that has exploded in a way that affects us all who are within the system. I hope that we can say that humans don't live on bread alone. We can live in a simpler way. And the miracle of our clothes lasting maybe has to do with the way we're walking with God when we actually wear them. Shabbat shalom.